Good morning, church. As you probably noticed, uh, we are not in Luke this morning. And the reasons for that is, um, basically, since 2013, I have been in some form of education, and I am in the home stretch. And so, uh, I graduate this May, and part of that is I have to preach through different pa- different literary genres of scripture. So, Stephen graciously let me pause Luke and move over to Galatians, because this text has been on my heart. So, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we just thank you for your grace that this morning we can sing your praises and um, circle up around your word without threat of our lives. So would you help us to prepare for what is coming? Prepare our hearts for the attacks of the enemy, of the evil one. Lord, what we know not, we ask that you would teach us. And what we have not, we ask that you would give us. And what we are not, for the sake of your name, O God, we ask that you would make us. In your name, we pray and agree. Amen. This is a picture of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And as dawn broke on December 7th, 1941... The Japanese had attacked the U.S. Pacific Fleet here at Pearl Harbor, resulting in the United States finally being pushed into World War II. But what was far more astonishing is that the fleet here was entirely unprepared for the battle that came. What you may not know about this event is over a week prior to the attack, The U.S. intelligence agencies had broken the Japanese code that they were transmitting information about the assault over. So they knew what was coming. And these intelligence officers, after intercepting this message about a coming attack, they would warn Washington of the planned attack. But the problem was there were many different intelligence agencies at the time. And they were communicating not the whole story to one another. And in fact, as they warned Washington, most of them, quite frankly, did not believe the Japanese would ever do something like this. And that the result would be catastrophic. 2,403 U.S. personnel, including 68 civilians and 19 naval Ships would be decimated in one day, in just a few hours. And in Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 10, we're informed not just about something that's happened in the past, about the church of Galatia, but also what will come, what we will see in our church even, what we will encounter Church, I believe the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is that the people of God would lose their footing over the gospel. That we would deviate from the message that saved us. From the object of our faith. And this is a direct issue that Paul is dealing with in our text 
this morning. So what we must understand is that the one true gospel, we need to understand what it is and what the implications of believing it will be for us. It's something also, church, that we must watch over carefully and treasure deeply in our hearts because a full-fledged attack is coming. It is. If it hasn't already come, more subtly, more secretively. This is something we will encounter and we cannot be unprepared. So this morning, we're going to prepare. We're going to prepare our hearts by seeing how the gospel roots us deep, how it informs our hearts and our minds, and how it equips us for Christian service. Look with me at verse 6 here, and let us see how the true gospel roots us. Paul, saying this to the church in Galatia, says, I'm amazed. Everybody say amazed. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Anytime we hear stories of defection or deconstruction or treason, we naturally become astonished. We become amazed at what is going on in front of us. We ask questions like, how could this have happened or Uh, Why did this person do this? Or what did that person truly believe that resulted in defecting from their faith? And Paul equally becomes amazed and astonished when professing Christians defect from what saved them. And in Acts chapter 15, we get a fuller picture of the events surrounding this letter to the church in Galatia. Verse 1, it says that some men came down from Judea, and they began to teach the brothers. What they taught was this. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you add to what Christ has done, you cannot be saved. The first attack on the gospel is that grace in Christ is not enough for salvation. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said that it's the same thing as saying, like, Christ was a good craftsman, you know, and he even started the work on his building, but he wasn't able to finish it. We need to leave finishing the finishing work to Moses' hands. This is simply not the truth. Or we could say, Christ began the building, but the law finishes it out. Saying essentially that grace plus works equals salvation. But this view cannot root us deep. In fact, this idea is like what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, that this kind of salvation is like the house built on the sand. And when the storm comes, the house will collapse. Rather, he encourages us to believe the true gospel of the Son is like a house built on the rock. And when the storm comes, what does the house do? It stands. It stands testing. Church, we do not wage war 
against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And the sleight of hand that Satan desires to fool us is for us to exchange deep, strong roots for shallow, weak ones that break at the first moment of tension. And we see it all over the place today, do we not? Christians... We're professing Christians, exchanging the exclusivity of Christ and the calling on their lives for the affirmation of culture. Affirmation of culture. And people today, they're going to tell you, hey, you can believe in Jesus, but you need to compromise what he teaches. Teachings on marriage or sexuality or love, holiness, biblical fidelity. Arguing a different gospel that says grace plus new cultural ideology equals salvation. It's the same equation with a different um, variable. You see, Satan, he's not able to destroy the church in this full-fledged direct attack. Rather, what he does is he raises up wicked spirits in teachers and At first, these people will tolerate our confession of faith, what we believe and what we teach. And they'll even teach it with consent. But sooner or later, they will compromise. And not only will they compromise, but they will encourage others to abandon the roots of their faith and defect from Christ, exchanging him for some other savior. The tension I see today is that Christians break and defect when it gets personal, right? When there are faces who are uh, the source of the tension that we're beginning to believe and wrestle with. You may know someone, you have a loved one who says they are Christians, but, but they engage in corruption. Maybe it's homosexuality, right? Maybe a brother or sister or friend is a homosexual, and you love them, and they argue And the world affirms what I'm doing. And maybe they even affirm Jesus to a degree. At least his grace, right? And then you become pressured, not just by them, but also by the world to break what you believe, to compromise on your faith. You become pressured or led astray, even from the deceptiveness in your own heart. Because you're like, man, I grew up with this person. I love this person. And God's not calling us to abandon them, because he's not. He's calling us to engage in loving them, absolutely. But he's calling us to do these things without compromise for what Scripture teaches. But it is a difficult space when it gets personal, because we bend and we bend And we break often. And you will break if what you've exchanged is the gospel for some other system of beliefs. What amazes Paul is how quickly people defect when the true gospel is what should root us. So how does it root us then, right? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. But this is not from yourself. 
this is not, or this is God's gift, not from works, meaning not from our works, but from his, so that no one can boast, can't boast in your own work. Then the text says, for we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The Lord of salvation deeply roots us because he is the craftsman who finishes his work. He starts and finishes. And God gives us, the text says, the gift of faith to then place on Christ and his atoning work on the cross and his work of resurrection conquering sin and death from the grave. So that when we believe, it's because God has enabled us to. He's done something in a heart. He has given a new birth. He has brought to life what was dead. This cannot be a work of our own. We believe because God has enabled us to. And as a result, what we receive is grace instead of judgment. Instead of wrath. Hear me closely, church. Salvation is through works. Don't throw anything at me, guys. But the work is not our own. The work is Christ's. His work in our place. So, friends, what is your salvation rooted in? Are you rooted totally in Christ or are you compromising your faith for following some ever-changing culture? In the affirmation of men, compromise holiness for the sake of temporary approval and it will swiftly lead you to defection and deconstruction. And what my hope for you is that you would drive your heels deep into the work of Jesus and not your own. That you would develop some spiritual grit about you. This resiliency. That when storms come, because of what you're planted in, you do not break. You do not compromise. Because an attack is coming. But it is the true gospel of Jesus Christ that roots us. But it, it doesn't only just root us. It also informs our minds and our hearts of the news that we must believe. And this news must be transmitted by the faithful. So look with me at verses 7 through 9. Paul says this. Not that there is another gospel. But there are some who are troubling you. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said it before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. When I was 16 years old, I was driving home from school. I was in my cool little car, right? And I got to my house, and I turned my right blinker on to turn into my driveway. And there was a man who was driving behind me on a motorcycle. And he made the decision, because I was slowing down, that he would pass me up on the right-hand side as quick as he could. The problem was it was too late. I was already turning into my driveway. 
So the man had to make a decision. He laid his bike down. He got some cuts and scrapes, but, you know, we helped him on his way. And then several weeks later, he would show up at my front door with a neck brace and on crutches, demanding for my insurance. The problem was with this individual that he didn't have a license to drive a motorcycle. And instead of being honest about his situation, he tried to defraud his insurance company by suing a 16-year-old boy, me, which is very interesting to go, to, go through as a teenager. And so uh, we would find out what would happen in court. This man, he was deceptive and he was dishonest, but when he got on the stand in the courtroom, all of his deception was found out. And the jury found me free of any guilt. So when someone brings a message or a claim or a suit, they have to be a reliable source coming from a position of truth. Or they will be found out at some point or another. So after correcting the folks in Galatia, Paul orientates his focus towards wolves in sheep's clothing. He highlights that there are some who are striving, who are working, who are making an effort to distort the gospel of Christ. And he condemns them and he rebukes them because they are deceivers who are trying to deceive the church by bringing false accusations against the apostles and the message that they have imparted to those in the church, you see, both groups are working, are striving. The apostles are striving to deliver a message of truth and hope in Jesus Christ that will save. Their efforts are found in this position. They're striving to please God and not people. And these false teachers, they're also striving. But they're striving to distort the gospel, to add to the gospel, to convolute the gospel, to gain up a following. That's what's going on. And so we've come to a head, right? Two great powers fighting. Who will be found to be true? Well, when information is presented, discernment is required. So the question is, how do I discern what is true? You must measure what you hear by a standard or a rule or something outside that is trustworthy. And Paul is arguing here that the standard is the message of the word of God. He says, even if an angel preaches a contrary gospel, then the one that the apostles have preached to you, let them be cursed the gospel, it informs us about salvation. In the scriptures, Paul tells Timothy that they make us wise unto salvation. They wisen us up. They give wisdom so that we would arrive at the cross. It informs us about salvation. The scriptures make us wise because they are the standard and special proclamation of, the message, of this message to those who are perishing. You cannot become wise into salvation any other way, is the argument. And in Acts chapter 17, um, we, Luke tells us this story about Paul and Silas arriving 
at a synagogue in Berea. And when he arrives in this place, what he does, uh, like he arrives in any place, he runs to the synagogue, he begins to preach what? What do you think? The gospel, right. You guys have read the Bible before. Well done. He comes, he preaches the gospel, but he praises the Bereans. Because as they listen to Paul, as they receive this information, they begin to search the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures is what they're trying to discern based on a standard. Huh, this is what you're saying. What does the text say? What is the message? What does Genesis 3.15 say? What is um, Genesis 15 and 17 talking about? The seed who will come from Abraham, the offspring. That will do what in the world? What does Isaiah 53 say about a man of suffering who will come to bear the iniquities of us all? Psalm 22, so on and so forth. We could talk about it all day long, but the Bereans go back to the standard and they measure what they hear. They discern what is true. And the result is that many of them come to faith. Unfortunately, though, this is not the practice of many. They hear a message, and if what they hear makes them happy, or the Bible says tickles their ears, they affirm it because it makes you feel good. Or it gets you in the in crowd, which is what the church in Galatia is wrestling with when these men from Judea arrive. What Paul wants us to be informed by is the very words of God. This is why he says, even if an angel comes, says something, <laughs> you must measure it by the message that we have already that was received by reliable resources. Angels. Genesis chapter 3. A fallen angel had come and introduced a new knowledge, an alternative knowledge that was deceptive. And instead of trusting the reliable source, God, Adam and Eve would choose to be swayed by a contrary message. Same game, different time. In 1823, a man by the name of Joseph Smith said that he received a message from an angel that would give him a better picture of what Christianity is supposed to be. So he would take things out of the Bible and he would add a whole few other books to it. He even called it a restoration of the early church. And this would lead to the religion of Mormonism. Islam. Muhammad would be in a cave. He'd be visited by some angel. And this angel would tell him to write down words to believe and put into practice. He's heard them. He writes them down. He goes forward. And today we have the nation of Islam. Same game. Different moments. Paul is warning us time and time again. If what you hear is not what you've received from God and from the prophets and from the apostles, then you must abandon it at all costs. You must run from it. 
because these messages that are contrary to the original source are aimed at leading you astray, not to the arms of God. There is a reason, church, why your pastors relentlessly call you to be informed, informed by God's word, and not everything else going on under the sun, because you're going to hear contrary messages. And it is a work of Satan. And if you are unable to discern what is true, you will fall very far. So to prepare for this attack, you must prepare your hearts. This is um, like sharpening your sword or putting rounds into your magazine because a fight is coming. So how do we prepare our hearts? Two words. Memorization. Meditation. We must begin to memorize and meditate on Scripture so that we have rounds in us to discern in the moment what we are hearing, when it gets personal, when it's a half-truth. If we don't have it in here, we're not going to be able to navigate that tension. One practical source you can utilize is an app called Fighter Verses. It's also a website, so you can get it for free as well. And this helps you memorize different texts, key texts, so that you would not be so easily swayed. And we would not be so astonished when there's an abandoning of the faith. You want to be ready. You want a sharp sword for the coming fight and not to be fooled so quickly by silver-tongued Deceivers, we must be informed by the gospel. We must hide it deep in our hearts. The true gospel, it should root us in Christ. It should inform our minds and our hearts about Christ. But it must also equip us to serve Jesus instead of ourselves. So look with me at the last verse of our passage, verse 10. Paul says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In 258 AD, a man by the name of Lawrence was a deacon in the church of Rome at this time. And the church at this time was under severe persecution. And Lawrence's duty as a deacon was to manage money and the distributions to the poor. Well, in order to cripple the church, Emperor Valerian would issue an edict that essentially said to all the magistrates to round up every bishop, every priest, every deacon, and we're going to kill them. So they began that task, and Lawrence was rounded up. But he was given a potential deal. Uh, We would say a plea bargain, right? He was presented with this this reality. If you go back to your church, get all of its treasure, bring it back to us and surrender it to to Rome, then we will let you go free. And so they let him off to go do his task. He says, oh, yeah, totally, I could do that. No sweat. And he goes home and he rounds up the sick, the widowed, the orphans, the aged, 
rounds them up, brings them back to the magistrate and says, here is the treasure of the church. And they would sentence him to a martyr's death. I mean, he embraced this death with great calm. He even quipped to his executioners at one point as he was being burned alive. I'm done on this side. Turn me over. Some, uh, some chutzpah in him, right? And what Paul is arguing is that when you look at his ministry, it is not marked by efforts to please people, but is consumed by efforts to please God, to remain faithful regardless of the suffering and affliction that he has endured. You see, the gospel frees us to serve Christ wholly, to count others as more significant than ourselves, to show the world what we really treasure. And there is no other gospel and there is no other Savior that can free you from sin except by Christ. And when the gospel is so rooted in you and you are so informed by it, you are empowered then by God to serve him with great confidence and great assurance. But for others, what people think becomes their treasure. And it opens a doorway into a false gospel. Because in the heart they are dealing with, or maybe you are dealing with, the idol of self, a, a, a consuming fire in you to make everything about you. Self-gratification, self-service. When you go into the world and you do things, it's always motivated by what you can get out of it. And here is where Paul points out he is nothing. He is not like this. He's not, he's not doing these things to please people. Because pleasing people would steal glory from God. His efforts are about giving glory to God. And church, you will be presented with choices like, if you compromise this, then you will receive that. You will receive influence and power and approval. You'll receive glory and it is enticing, as it has always been enticing, when the serpent visited Adam and Eve. He said, you will be like God. You will steal glory from him. And the fall came, and the curse spread far and wide. And we still wrestle with the same things in each and every one of us. Some to lesser degrees than the other. But the same trick is being used over and over and over again. And if you are unaware of it, and if you do not wage war against it, you will be a glory thief instead of a glory giver. Church, the true gospel, it equips you for service to Christ. And the Holy Spirit empowers you not to steal glory, but to give it where it is due. And it will unleash you into the world as an ambassador of Christ, to be his representative in the earth, to teach the world 
This is what real treasure is, regardless of what you do to me. So we must be prepared for attacks like this. And we must not neglect the intel we receive that will lead ultimately to our friends defecting, being deceptive, and being destroyed by another message that cannot save. Therefore, we must be rooted, we must be informed, and we must be equipped by the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that you would be prepared for wolves, for spiritual forces at work, and even the deceptive nature of your own heart. Let's stand and pray.